I was sharing Christ with someone a long time ago, and, and, and I was attempting to actually share Christ with them, and their response to me was, there are two things in this world that I don't engage in conversation about. One is religion. The other is politics. You've heard it too. Well, you're here because you think it's okay to talk about religion, and now today is going to put you to the test to see if it's okay to talk about politics. Because we are starting a two-week mini-series today titled The Ultimate Decision 2012. So we'll be back in Hebrews after we do this two-week mini-series. Now, I want to remind you that the church in decades past was the central place for engaging in conversation about religion and about politics. And this whole mentality that we're not supposed to do that publicly or together, I don't know where that came from, but that's not the roots of who we are as Americans. It's not the roots of who we are as the church, and so we're going to go retro today. And so, and so you, just, you just join in, and we're going to go there and just see what the Lord does in our lives. Now, when um, Israel was about to go into the promised land and begin to take over some of these other people that were inhabiting the land that God had promised them, they came to a place where they were overlooking Jericho. And Joshua is leading the Israelites. And in Joshua chapter 5, we see that Joshua, standing outside of Jericho, has an encounter with a man who is standing before him as a great warrior with sword drawn, ready to go to battle. And Joshua sees this guy, and he says to him, I want to know, are you on our side, or are you on the adversary's side? To which that man holding the sword says, no, I am on the captain, I am the captain of the Lord's army. So he basically said, I'm not on their side, I'm not on your side, I'm on God's side. In other words, Joshua, you've asked the wrong question. Now if God chooses to send the captain of his army to appear to President Obama, This week, it's likely that Obama may, in the course of any kind of conversation that ensues, ask the question, I'm really curious as to whether or not you're on my side or you're on Romney's side. But that would be the wrong question. If the Lord sends the captain of his army to appear to Romney, Romney might want to ask that same question. I want to know if you're for me or if you're for my enemy. Wrong question. When you go to cast your vote, and you're standing there in the voting booth, if the captain of the Lord's army happens to look over your shoulder at that moment, you might want to ask him at that point, hey, are you for who I am checking off, or are you for who I would never check off? But that would be the wrong question. It is imperative that we know as God's people the right question and the right answer. And Jesus can help us out. You know, he had several encounters with the religious political parties of his day. And several such encounters are recorded in Matthew chapter 22. And so I want to look briefly at Matthew chapter 22 together. Because these political parties, these religious parties are coming to Jesus. And they're essentially asking him to take a side. And so let's see how Jesus handles that. Matthew chapter 22 starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, 
Teach the way of God in truth. Defer to no one. You are not partial to any. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? So the Pharisees send a group of their disciples in the Herodians to Jesus to ask him a question. You've got to understand that the Pharisees certainly are not for the poll tax because they believe that the Romans should not be ruling over the Jews. They don't think that's right. They don't think they should submit to that authority. The Herodians want the Roman rule to be unaffected. They don't want to offend the Romans. They want to keep paying the poll tax because they want the Herodian rule to continue among the Jews. They're for that. And so you get two different sides that come to Jesus and they're asking Jesus a question about this tax, which is essentially saying, Jesus, whose side are you on? And so Jesus responds, verse 18, But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving, they, leaving him, they went away. And here's, so what, here's what happens. Jesus gets the question, which side are you on? Jesus gives such a response that clearly says, I'm not going to participate in your political jargon. I'm going to do the truth. And when I do the truth, it's going to create a dividing line for you. And you're going to realize that I don't take sides. I create a dividing line of truth. That's a wrong question. Okay, he continues, verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. And so also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The other major religious party did believe in the resurrection. So they come to Jesus again saying, Whose side are you on? And Jesus responds, verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scripture, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus gives an answer, does not take sides. He gives an answer of truth that forces the issue of the dividing line so that others have to choose what they're going to do with what Jesus said. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not taking a side. I'm the dividing line. You've asked the wrong question. Verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. This was a question just like the other questions. It had a variety of sides to take. They asked the question, getting Jesus, wanting Jesus to take a particular position that would put him on a side to create controversy and get him in a trap. Jesus gives an answer out of Deuteronomy, out of 
Leviticus that does not represent any side. It represents a truth upon which all of the law and prophets hang. And there's nothing anyone could say about this except realize that Jesus has just communicated to them. He's not taking your side or their side. He is creating a dividing line of truth. And this is the point where Jesus begins to turn the tables. And instead of responding to a question, he is now going to ask a question. And this is where we get insight on what the right question really is. Verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. Pretty much put it to rest right there. Now what Jesus does is he quotes out of Psalm 110. If you remember as we have worked through Hebrews that the primary text for the Sermon of Hebrews is Psalm 110. This psalm talks about the Messiah. And so when he asks the question of the Pharisees, whose son is the Messiah? They say he's the son of David. Well, Jesus then quotes a psalm that they would have associated with the Messiah, which emphasizes this comment that David called his son Lord. In a divine sense. And so Jesus is asking them, how is it that David called his son God? And if he called him God or Lord, then how did he also call him son? So Jesus is creating this scenario that really emphasizes the reality of who he is. See, Jesus is God in the flesh. The son of God and the son of David. He's come from the lineage of David, born to Mary. And so Jesus is giving them an opportunity to recognize who he is in the fact that there's no one like him and that he embodies who the, prophecy, the prophecies of who the Messiah would be. So if you boil down Jesus' question here and you say, what is really Jesus saying here? He is saying to the Pharisees and the religious leaders here, I am the Messiah. And the real question The right question, the only question, are you on my side? It's the same thing that Joshua experienced when he was standing before the captain of the Lord's army. Are you on my side or are you on their side? No, that's not how this works. See, I am a part of the Lord's army. He doesn't take a side. The question is, are you on his side? And and really, that is the heartbeat of this entire issue of headed toward what you're going to do with the election. I mean, here's the deal. Someday, President Obama is going to appear before the Lord. You know what question he's going to have to answer? Were you on Jesus' side? Someday Romney is going to appear before the Lord. He's going to have to answer the question, were you on Jesus' side? And guess what? 
every single one of us is going to appear before the Lord and we're going to have to answer the question, were we on Jesus' side? And one of the ways that you will answer that question in part is how you will vote. Now I want to give you just a principle that this series is built upon that we're just going to unpack a little bit this morning that really helps you think through political issues as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, here it is. As followers of Christ, our ultimate authority is the ultimate king. And our ultimate agenda is the king's agenda. And thus we have hope in Jesus Christ. That is a biblical principle that I think guides us in the political process. Our ultimate authority is the ultimate king. Not the president, not the nation. It's Jesus Christ. And our ultimate agenda is not the agenda of my home. It's not the agenda of my state. It's not the agenda of my country. It's not the agenda of my government. It's the agenda of the king of kings. And that is the only way I can have hope is because I have identified those realities and truths as my own. So let's talk a little bit about this ultimate authority. I'm going to give you four principles, and we're just going to kind of flow through Matthew 22 again and, and look at these four principles. Number one, every authority on the earth is borrowed authority. Every authority on the earth is borrowed authority. You can see in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 15, that whole exchange about the poll tax to Caesar, that there is a governing authority in the land that the Pharisees are questioning to Jesus. And Jesus affirms the authority of the government in his response as being an extension of God's authority. All right, so we've got to understand that every authority on the earth is borrowed authority. The reason it's borrowed authority is because Jesus Christ has all the authority. It all belongs to him. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me. If you want to read additionally, you can look at Psalm chapter 2. Incredible psalm about the authority of the coming king, the Messiah, and how his authority relates to all other authorities, the authorities of other kings. And how other kings are supposed to submit to Jesus because he has all the authority and every bit of authority that anyone else has has been given to them by him. He has given out all authority. That's why Jesus doesn't take sides. He is the dividing line who has all authority. And that's why every secondary authority has to answer the question, am I on Jesus' side? See, every authority on the earth is meant to express their authority according to the ultimate authority's agenda. Principle number two. Okay, one is every authority on earth is borrowed authority. Principle number two is every authority on the earth is meant to express their authority in a way that reflects the ultimate king's agenda, the way they were meant to express it. And we can see that, that Matthew 22 kind of unfolds several areas of authority, really the four areas of authority that exist, that God has given. And the first area is civil authority. We see that in that first passage in Matthew 22, the poll tax. So civil authority. The second authority is family authority. We see that in the conversation about the family, about marriage, as it relates to the resurrection particularly. 
So we see the family authority. Number three, we see the church authority. When you get into heaven, you're not going to see the family. You're going to see the church. The family's not the same. In heaven, you have the church that remains. So you have the church authority. And then number four, you see it in the last exchange. Before Jesus asks the question, you see the exchange about individual authority. What is the most important commandment? You are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So you see the four categories of authority that God has established on the earth. The civil authority the family authority, the uh, church authority, and the individual authority. And you notice of the three organizational authorities, civil, family, and church, there's only one that lasts forever. It's the church. The church is the only eternal organization that God has given authority to, and, and we've got to understand that that means that the church is the avenue through which the ultimate king carries out his ultimate agenda now and through eternity. So what that means for you and for me is that every authority is meant to express its God-given authority so that the church is enabled to accomplish the God's, the God's ultimate agenda. So what that means is that the government is supposed to express her authority in such a way that the church can further the king's agenda. The family is supposed to live out its authority in such a way that the church is enabled to fulfill God's agenda for the glory of Christ and the salvation of lost people. Every individual, you and me, we are supposed to live out our authority so that the church can carry out the king's agenda because the church is the one that lasts now and forever, honoring and glorifying God, carrying out the agenda of God for all time and eternity. So everything is supposed to center around that agenda, the king's agenda. And the reason this question, are you on Jesus' side, is so important is because of principle number three. Every authority will give an account for how they expressed that borrowed authority. All four authorities will give an account. The civil authority, the family authority, the church authority, and the individual authority. We will give an account before God how we use that authority. In other words, we're going to have to answer the question, were you on Jesus' side? And that means that every one of us in this room is going to have to answer the issue of whether or not we exercised our individual authority in such a way that we resembled the authority of the ultimate king in how we voted. But there's something more important than that. How you live your life is so much more important than what you do when you cast a ballot you're really going to have to answer the question in regard to your life. Were you on Jesus' side? And the reason answering that question is so incredibly, desperately important for you and for me is because of principle number four. There is no person on the earth in all of history that can find hope outside of submitting to the ultimate authority. There is no hope outside of being on Jesus' side. And because Jesus doesn't take sides, the only question that we have to answer is, what side are we on? Are we on Jesus' side? There's no one like Him. 
He alone came and lived in perfect submission to the Father so that He might take our insubordination to the ultimate authority and pay the penalty for that and give us His perfect subordination to the Father in exchange. So that we who have no right to be a part of the king's agenda might step in line with what the ultimate king is doing because he paid for our penalty of being insubordinate and rebellious toward him. So that now we can, through Jesus Christ, walk in hope, anticipate in hope, and look forward to the return of our king because he has paid the price of our sins. There is only one way to get hope in this life and it's through submitting to Jesus Christ. The government can't provide it. You know, no matter what happens on election day, your candidate wins, your candidate loses, whatever. It doesn't affect our hope. Not as a nation, not as an individual, not as a church, because our hope rests in Jesus Christ in all categories of expressed authority. Only in Jesus. Your hope is not in your family. Your hope is not in the government. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. And the only way you experience that hope is by submitting to His authority. So what does that mean for you come November 6th? What does that mean you're going to do? I think it ought to look a lot like it looked for Joshua. Joshua comes face to face with that man, the drawn sword. And the man says, I'm not on your side, I'm not on their side, I'm on the Lord's side. You know what Joshua did? He got on his face, and this is what he said. He said, what does my Lord ask of his servant? What do you need to do? You need to get on your face, and you need to tell Jesus, what do you ask of me? I want to be on your side. I get people asking me things like, who are you going to vote for? You going to vote for Obama? Surely not. You going to vote for Romney? He's a Mormon. How could you do that? I mean, I, I get those questions, and really, as, as important as those questions may seem, there's really a bigger question that, that we all have to answer. Are we going to be on Jesus' side? Some of you may be approaching this whole thing kind of like Joshua. I wonder if God's for, you know, the Democrats or if God's for the Republicans. I just want to remind you that there's no reason to believe that God is now or ever will ride a donkey or an elephant. It's not going to happen. If you just look at Romans chapter 13, you know what you're going to discover? is that God has been putting both Democrats and Republicans in power over our recent history. There's a bigger question. Are you going to be on God's side? I'm not supposed to tell you who to vote for. But today I'm going to. You know pastors are not supposed to say things like that because of our tax-exempt status. Well, today I'm going to tell you who to vote for. And here's the reason why. You know, years and years ago, we had political 
issues surfacing in no less frequency than we do today. But the difference was decades ago that the parties that were talking about the variety of issues and the perspectives on the issues were both operating from the basic same moral foundation. You could hold one position, one party, one position, another party, and you're both dealing with it from the same accepted moral foundation. And in the late 60s and early 70s, that moral foundation began to diverge. All the way until 2012, where our political parties' platforms are now dealing with moral issues that cannot be ignored so that we no longer have the leisure of picking a candidate that we prefer because of their economic reform or of their political position on this secondary issue. We don't have the leisure to entertain the idea of picking candidates because we like some preference about that candidate. We have moral issues that are threatening the agenda of the king. I mean, so you've got to ask the question. This question is asked on Christ's behalf. I mean, can you vote for a candidate who openly stands for the continuation of murdering unborn children? Can you vote for a candidate who says, I stand against marriage of a man and a woman? Can, can you vote for a candidate who says, I don't care about religious freedom anymore? I mean, here's the deal. You have got to take a stand and cast your ballot for Jesus Christ and His agenda. That's who you vote for. You vote for Jesus and His agenda. Now, if you're, if you're really listening this morning, your next question is, my ballot doesn't have Jesus on it. And the truth is, there's never going to be a candidate that will ever appear on our ballot. And there will never be a party that is on our ballot that perfectly represents the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. And I think that's freeing for us. That means that when we vote for a particular candidate, we're not necessarily condoning everything about him or everything about her. We're not saying that they're perfect and they're God's answer to all of our problems because we know our hope is only in Jesus. When we go to cast our vote for Jesus and his agenda, you know what we're really doing? We're voting for a candidate or for a party that best enables the church to carry out the king's agenda. That is the lens you take to the polls. What candidate, what party, what person on this ballot will best enable the church to carry out the king's agenda for the glory of Christ and the salvation of the lost. That's the candidate that I have to vote for because I'm not casting my vote for the Democrats. I'm not casting my vote for the Republicans. I'm casting my vote for Jesus and his agenda. So whose side are you on? Are you on Jesus' side? And I'm not talking about the election. I'm talking about your life. I mean, if somebody was to take your life this last week and just 
evaluate and examine your daily activities, would they conclude on the basis of how you've lived your life that you've been striving and moving forward in living your life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? That you recognize that the authority you have as an individual is borrowed authority. And that you're supposed to be living that out as God means for you to live that out. And that you're going to have to give an account for how you live that out. And the only way you giving an account leads you to any kind of hope is that you found your life in Christ. And you're living and striving for Him to be the Lord of your life. That's what I mean by this question. Not how will you vote, but how will you live? Because if you decide to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, your vote will take care of itself. So, whose side are you?